<clears throat> All right. Well, welcome back. If you guys were on vacation this last week, um, welcome back. I was on vacation as well. Got a little sick from it, but uh, we're powering through. So here's what I want you to do before we get started is just tell someone next to you where you were for Thanksgiving. So who you were with, if you went out of town, whose house you went to, who you had at your house, tell them real quick how your Thanksgiving was. Okay, so did anybody go anywhere fun for Thanksgiving? Did you go out of town? Did you have any adventures? Anybody go out of town for Thanksgiving? Yes, where did you go to? New York City? Wow, that's, that's pretty awesome. Okay, and you made it back for the weekend, obviously, because you need, I, I heard, yeah, okay, good. Uh, where else? Anybody else go anywhere for Thanksgiving? We have a New York. Anybody, anybody beat New York? Where? Barstow. <laughs> I feel like that's the, we're going the opposite direction here. Next thing. Any Bakersfield? Anybody go to Bakersfield? No? Okay. All right. No. Uh, anybody else go anywhere exciting for Thanksgiving? Do you guys go? No? Illinois. Illinois. All right. Hey. Oh, okay. All right. All right. My dad would be excited about that. Uh, Illinois. We had someone last night that went to Cancun, which I said, very traditional Thanksgiving. That's great. Very fun. Anybody else go anyplace exciting for Thanksgiving? Anywhere? No? Big Bear. Where? Texas. Texas. Eh, okay. That's fine. That's fine. Okay. You can shoot your own uh, turkey over there, I'm sure. So anyway. Okay. So uh, we, uh, we just got back from Northern California. We, we spent the entire week out in the woods riding quads, and it was, uh, it was a blast. And I'll tell you a little bit about that in a moment, but um, we're going to go ahead and give back to God. And so as uh, they are passing the buckets, if you're visiting with us, don't feel obligated to give. This is kind of what we do as a part of a church family and part of worship and just giving back uh, uh, giving in God what is already his. Um, and so anyway, we're going to do that right now. So here's what I've realized recently is as we are coming back from uh, our family, we don't call them vacations, because if you have little ones or you've had little ones, you know that there is no vacationing happening with little kids. We call them family trips. And so we just got back from our family trip, and, um, and it was full of excitement, and it was also full of just a lot of tears, okay? Because this is the life that little kids live, is their emotions are a roller coaster. I think they're kind of analogous to a drunk sorority girl in that they are laughing and crying all in the same moment. We're having a blast, but we're also so depressed. This is the uh, life of a toddler. And also, uh, because of that, it is also the life of a parent. So I have had some of the highest highs and the lowest lows uh, as I have parented these three children. And so, for example, this last week, uh, Jed, who is now, he's going to be six weeks old uh, this week, um, he gave me, or at least the first one that I saw, his first smile. You know, like the baby's first smile, and they kind of go, ah, and you go, oh, God, you know, like, I'll keep you, you're great, you know, like, this is so cute. And, uh, and Ezra, he, he just, he, he's a rock star, he rode quads all week, he just wanted to ride quads and wear cowboy boots. I said, that is my son, and I am proud of him, and my daughter... Uh, she's a handful, and I've talked, to her, talked about her a little bit. Recently, because we've added this third child, things have been kind of overwhelming, and they're really um, destroying my schedule. And, and so we decided that uh, I would help around the house, and I would do some of the tasks that my wife usually does. I'm going to you know, try to make some time to do that. So one of those things is picking up and dropping off from school. And so I recently went and um, 
I kind of tried to figure out the schedule of how it went, so I was picking up Sienna from school, and they come out, and the kids run out to their parents uh, when, they, when they get let out of a TK, and I'm standing there, and she runs to me, and as she's running to me, the teacher says, I want to talk to you. And I said, oh, great, this is awesome, okay, uh, uh, what's up? And she starts laughing, and she says, you know, your daughter just cracked me up today. And I thought, ooh, okay, good. So what, it, what happened? She said, well, this was right before Veterans Day, so we were talking about the armed forces, and we were talking about um, which ones work on the water. And so we were talking about all the different, the Navy and things, and, and as we were talking about that, I finished up, and I said, now, can anyone think of any other people that work on the water? And my daughter raises her hand and she says, Jesus works on the water because Jesus can walk on water. <laughs> I was like, all right. <laughs> Amen, sister. And then she proceeded to give a sermon and took an offering. So it was great. No. Uh, it was just those little glimpses where you're just like, this is so, this is, this is one of the best things about being a parent. And then literally in the same day, you can have those moments in which you think, what am I doing with my life right now? Two nights ago, we got back from our uh, mini trip, and we decided, or I decided, I would pack up the kids at 2.30 in the morning and drive them home from Northern California so that they could sleep all the way home, which actually worked out pretty good. Six and a half hours, we made it home, um, not too much drama. But by the time that we got home, they were not in a good mood. And so by that night, when it was bedtime, everybody was cranky, everybody was crying, and including the kids. And so we're just having... <laughs> We're having a rough time. And at one point, it got so bad that all three kids are crying. They're throwing a fit. They're throwing things across the room. And I just look at Amy and I go, I think they're winning. I think they're beating us right now. I, I'm feeling a little defeated. Are you? And she's like, oh, yes. <laughs> and you can have those moments back to back where it's the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And I, I think that's just what parenting is. And I want to share with you a story today out of the Old Testament in which it talks about this roller coaster ride of these highs and these lows that we experience in life. And those are, are pretty moderate, the ones that I just shared with you. But there are some more extreme events and situations in our life that um, are extremely high and extremely low. And so the story takes place in 2 Kings, 2 Kings' uh, book in the Old Testament. It's right after, come on, that's a freebie. 2 Kings right after 1 Kings. You don't even have to go to church to know that. I was trying to hook you up. Okay, right after 1 Kings. And it's written in the mid-500s BC. Uh, many people believe that it was written by the prophet Jeremiah. And it talks about Israel and the uh, division of Israel and eventually the destruction of uh, the nation. And I'm going to tell you about a story about a guy named Naaman. So in verse 1, it says this, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, which is if you're uh, following along and, and you have a different version, it may call it Aram, was a great man with his master in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And so we see that Naaman is experiencing um, two of the most potentially dangerous things that we experience as human beings, and he's experiencing them simultaneously. A great success and a great failure. He has incredible success in his life because he is probably number two in command of an incredibly um, prosperous and powerful nation. And so he is well-liked, he is well-known, he is wealthy, he has all the power and prestige that you can imagine. And then at the same time that he's experiencing this incredible success, he's also experiencing failure because his body is failing. All the things that he has um, worked for in his life is going to be taken away from him very soon because he has acquired a disease called leprosy. 
in which will take away his health, it will take away his relationships, it will take away his community. It will take everything away from him. And so he's experiencing the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And see, most of our life, we don't experience extreme success or, or extreme failure or loss. We usually live in this moderate zone in which it's a balance between some, um, some good and some bad, but nothing too extreme. So, uh, for example, my, uh, my dad started this exercise with my kids around the dinner table this whole week. We did it every single night, and he calls it the highs and lows of the day. What are your highs and lows of the day? And my three-year-old son, he was super into this. I don't know why we forgot to do it one night. He said, Papa, highs and lows. Papa, highs and lows. And he had the same answer every single day. His highs were, I rode the quads today. His lows were, I had to stop riding the quads today. That was it. That was his highs and that was his lows. And that's kind of how most of our days are. It's, you know, it's not too extreme highs. It's not too extreme lows. We're kind of balanced somewhere in the middle. And yet in this moment, um, we see that Naaman is experiencing an extreme degree of both. And you may have times in your life in which you have uh, incredible successes, where you have wins in your life, and it could be any arena of your life, and you may have moments in which you have loss or you have failure in any arena of your life. And then there are those moments in which you have both at the same time. It's rare, but it does happen throughout our life. And so the reason why this story resonates with me, and I'm sharing it with you today, is because I think I've come out of one of those seasons, or I'm in the middle of one of those seasons, in which I have had uh, in ministry the highest highs and the lowest lows that I've ever experienced before. So I've been in ministry for 15 years now, and throughout the 15 years I've had some, some successes and some wins, and I've had some failures, some losses, this last season, I have experienced the biggest wins and successes in ministry and the biggest losses and failures at the same time. And so as I think about Naaman, I think about someone who has experienced both and how he is able to come out on the other side and he's able to walk humbly in his success and yet confident in his failure. Because that's not my attitude and it's probably not yours. It's most of the time whenever I'm succeeding or I'm failing, um, I, it, it exposes who I really am. And that's actually why it's dangerous. That's why failure and success is one of the most dangerous things that you can experience. Is because in those moments, it's going to do something to you that normally you're able to hide. Normally you're able to pretend, you're able to show people who you want to be. But when you experience great success or great failure, all of the, all of the hiding all of the posturing, it all seems to disappear in your foundations. What your life is really built on, who you are, are laid bare for everybody to see. In those moments, you become who you truly are. So uh, I, I shared a while ago that we have, uh, we've been doing and will be doing for many years because I'm doing the work myself, a remodel on our house. And, um, and because the house was left open for a long time, we lived in a trailer in the driveway, it's a long story, there was, um, there was a, a group of, I would say group, I don't think that's probably the right word, um, a tribe, no, a ton of mice that decided that they wanted to live in our house while we were not living in the house. And so now we've been battling of whose house this really is for the last couple months. And um, I have taken down a few dozen of them so far, and I have become quite the mice hunter. In fact, this last week, uh, I was out working on the front of the house, and there was a pile of, uh, of, of trash that Amy had thrown out for me to take into the trash can. And so I'm picking it up, and I realize as I'm picking it up that there was a mouse that ran uh, underneath the trash. And 
I could have just ignored it, and I could have, okay, whatever, it's outside, it's not a big deal. But instead I said to all the neighbor kids, because they're all playing outside, my kids, all the neighbor kids, there's about a handful of them, all, I think seven and under. I said, hey, you guys want to go mouse hunting? Like, uh, yeah. Most of them were boys. Like, yeah, hello. And so everybody's crowding around, and we're going through, we're picking up stuff. And, and eventually the mouse you know, runs, and it hides underneath this other part of the house, and so the kids are just losing their mind. Like, ah! I'm like, yeah, let's get it. And so we're chasing it, and then we, we kind of get him to, to, to come out of where he was hiding, and he goes to another hiding place, and we're chasing him, and then we chase him again. And this time, uh, this mouse runs all the way down the side of my garage. He makes a right-hand turn, and then another right-hand turn because he went inside of my garage, in which I went, not again. This one was outside, now he's inside, and it's our fault. And so all the boys and, uh, and my daughter and the next-door neighbor, they all run into the garage, and we're looking for this mouse somewhere. And eventually, we find where the mouse is, and he has, um, he has sandwiched himself in between two boards against the wall. And so I look at the boys, and I go, boys, what do you want to do? And they're like, uh, smash it? <laughs> I'm like, okay. I mean, the people, I got to give the people what they want. And, uh, <laughs> and so... I won't get into too graphic of detail, but let's just say they're scarred for the rest of their life <laughs> because we uh, had a mouse sandwich. And so these kids just thought this was the craziest thing they have ever seen. And my next door neighbor, who's our friend and the, the mom of uh, some of these kids, just is making her way over and she would not hurt a fly. And I said, don't tell your mother what has happened here, okay? <laughs> and of course she finds out and then uh, she called me a murderer. But anyway, it's fine. <laughs> And here's, here's, here's what I think, and this is what I've learned by catching mice, is it's kind of analogous to what happens within our heart, is the way that you catch a mouse is not by stomping into a room and saying, I'm looking for a mouse, where are the mice in here? No, 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 no. Because they're going to hide, they're never going to come out. The, 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 the moment that they know that you're looking for them, they're, they're going to hide. They're not going to go anywhere. What you have to do is you have to be quiet, you have to set some traps, you have to be a little bit sneaky. And eventually you'll be able to catch that mouse. See, what happens within our hearts is a lot of us want to look and peer down into our hearts and go, okay, is there any pride down there? Is there any anger? Is there any envy? What is in my heart? And you're never going to see what's in your heart if that's how you approach it. You're never going to be able to find out what truly is at the bottom of your heart. It's kind of like trying to find a mouse by stomping in and announcing, I'm looking for mice. The way that it happens is it has to be exposed. You have to shine a light on it. And that's exactly what success and failure does, is it shines a light into the deepest places of our heart and it exposes what's actually down there. Because we can't look down there ourselves. We, our heart will hide uh, from, from us who we truly are. And so it's the success and the failures that end up exposing what is actually down there. And so let's look at success for a minute. I think success is dangerous, and both are dangerous, but for different reasons. Success can be dangerous because it makes us proud, which eventually blinds us to our own foolishness. So success breeds pride. I think all the, uh, and this is kind of typical of our culture, but we have a hard time taking compliments. You know, like when someone tells us, hey, you did a great, I can't believe it. And we, oh, stop. Okay, no, stop. But really inside, as we're saying, stop, no, come on, we're going, I know. I know I am that good. Ah, come on, I, I, go, I did a good job, I know it. Or, oh, come on, we're trying to be modest, but it's just kind of, it's a fake modesty. Because inside we're really going, yeah, I, I kind of am that smart. I am that talented. I do have that many friends and that kind of network, and I am that good looking, and I, yeah. 
And we, sell, we tell ourselves, we start you know, kind of selling ourselves on ourselves. And what happens is this bride, the, the, excuse me, this, this pride ends up breeding foolishness. I don't know if you've ever experienced um, a conversation with someone who is very successful in one arena of their life in which they have uh, become dominant in this area. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's business, maybe it's a medical field, whatever it may be. And you start discussing something that is outside of their realm of expertise, you will quickly realize they don't believe that they have any area outside of their expertise because we begin to believe that because we are successful in this arena, therefore we can be successful in all arenas. Because we understand this arena, we probably understand all arenas of life. We start to buy into the idea, because of our pride, that we are somebody and that we know something and we can do whatever we want. So here's a, a good example. Is The other day I was on a, a news website and there was an article and it said, scientists prove there is no God. And I thought, I should read that because that could really affect my job. I, I should know if this, is, if this is true or not. And so I start reading the article, and, and it is written by a, 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 a very successful scientist. And his whole argument is philosophical and theological. Here's why God would not have done X, Y, and Z, and here's why. And at the end of it, I thought, okay, first of all, those are horrible arguments, I've encountered a lot of arguments against the existence of God, and I can wrestle with those, but this was not one of them. And it's because what he did was he said, I am a scientist, and I'm really good at being a scientist, and so I am now going to give you my opinion on theology and philosophy. And I go, but you don't know theology and philosophy. Why should I trust what you have to say about two arenas of life in which you know nothing about? Well, because I'm successful in one arena, so it must mean that I'm successful in all arenas. And what happens is we begin to blind, we begin to come blind to our own foolishness. It not only makes us think that we um, know everything, but it also makes us believe that we can do whatever we want. And so if you've watched just a moment of the news in the last few weeks, you've seen that there are just tons of these sex scandals. That these very powerful and influential people have begun abusing um, um, those who are, are around them. And I was starting to think about what, what's the common, because it's happened politically and it's happening in politics, it's happening in Hollywood, it's happening all over the place. And what happens is I believe that these people have become successful in one arena of life, politics or, or acting or music or whatever it may be. And so they now believe that they can treat people however they want. I can say what I want and I can do what I want. Why? Because the pride has begun to blind me to my own foolishness. Paul says that the worst thing, and this may be shocking to some of us, the worst thing that God can do to someone who resists him, who refuses to come into a relationship with him, the worst thing that God can do is let them have a happy and successful life. What? That is it. That's kind of shocking. It was shocking to me when I first read it, is the worst thing that God can do for someone who resists him is let them have a successful and happy life. Because God understands that if you abuse success or you let it transform you in a negative way, that it will eventually consume you and it will, it will destroy you. And so he allows us to be taken away by our desires. Failure also has uh, dangerous consequences to our life if, um, if viewed incorrectly. See, Naaman was a very successful man, great man, powerful, victorious, of course, but his failure was leprosy. 
And what happens in moments of failure or loss is that the illusions of our life are shattered in that moment. And so we have to make a decision of what we're going to do next. See, we think that if we have enough success in our life, that we're going to be able to control our surroundings, that I can keep my family safe and I can manage my health and the health of people around me. Uh, I can control the situations. I can control my environments. I can control the future. If I just accomplish enough, if I acquire enough, then I'm going to be in control. But what happens is, is that eventually you will realize because of some circumstance, it could be internal, it could be external, that you are not in control of your life. That something comes and just turns your world upside down. It could be something that you do. It's a moral failure. It's a poor decision. It's, it's not recognizing something. Or it could be external, in which the economy crashes, a relationship is broken. Whatever it may be, someone may do something to you or you may do it to yourself. But eventually, we all know that no matter how successful you are, something is going to come along and it's going to turn your world upside down. And it doesn't matter how much money, prestige, power, it doesn't matter what you have, it is inevitable. And so in this moment, we have a decision that we can make. We can either react to this illusion of self-sufficiency and security being broken by becoming wise and loving as we go through these circumstances, or we can become hardened and cynical. See, I think people who have been through difficult circumstances, which is probably all of us, is we see them walk through and they will never be the same. They will always be changed. But here's the thing that amazes me is we can have two people walk through identical situations and one comes out hardened and one comes out humble. But they never come out the same. They're always going to be changed. And it's because change, it's because failure will always change us. We just get to decide how it's going to cha change us. I think this is really important because if we were to look at some of the things that destroys families and marriages and people's hopes and dreams, it is how they deal with success and failure. I have seen so many families destroyed by a person's success. They made a ton of money. They succeeded in this arena of their life. They became well-known. They had everything that they could ever want, and yet their family fell apart. I've also seen people fail, and they've lost, and they walk away from that, and they allow it to completely destroy them. They've lost their hope, their identity, their marriage is torn apart. They live in disgrace and shame. And so when we encounter success and failure, there is a lot that is at stake there. It is a very dangerous time if we do not approach it correctly. And so I want to see how Naaman deals with both this success and this failure. And so in verses 5, uh, 2 through 5, I'll give you a quick summary because what happens here is Syria, uh, which is the nation in which Naaman is from, is next-door neighbors to Israel. And they're not very good next-door neighbors. In fact, there's a lot of conflict between the two. Uh, Syria will come into Israel and they will raid them and they'll take away their goods and in fact, they'll even take away some of their, their people. And that happens, this girl is taken from Israel She's turned into a slave, and now she works for Naaman and Naaman's wife. And apparently, because Naaman is a good guy, and he treats, and even though he has slaves, he treats them really well, and he loves on them, and he cares for them. And apparently, they also care for him because they make him aware that there is this prophet, there is this miracle worker who lives in Israel. I remember it from when I was a child, and I think he might be able to help you with your leprosy. You need to go to Israel and you need to talk to him. And so Naaman goes to the king, his boss. 
He asked for a letter so that he can go and, and visit this other king. He asked for a ton of money and goods to take to the king of Israel, hopefully to ease things over because, you know, they don't have a great relationship and possibly buy some kind of healing from him. And so he goes to Israel with all of his people, and he shows up at the doorstep of the king. And here's what happens in verse 6. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy. Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So Naaman rolls up to the Israel in which they are enemies. He bring, he's a commander of an army. He brings a ton of people and he arrives with a letter that says, I have leprosy, an incurable disease, and I need you to cure me. The king goes, what? How am I supposed to do that? Oh, I see what's happening here. You bring me this letter, and when I refuse to cure you of leprosy, because I can't, you're going to then uh, declare war on us. I see what you're doing here. And so the king gets really upset. Now, that's clearly not what's happening here. Naaman genuinely is coming for some kind of healing, but the king doesn't understand that. But the king does say something I think that is important. He says this. He says, am I God to kill and to make alive? See, that's a pretty profound statement because what he's saying is the thing that you're looking for, there is nothing in this world that's going to be able to answer it. You're looking for something. He specifically is looking for healing of an incurable disease. And there is nothing in the world that's going to be able to do that. Now, you may not have an incurable disease, but we all can, we are like Naaman in that circumstance in which we have something in which we're looking for. We're looking for something in this world, and we can't find it. And we have looked, and we continue to look, and we continue to put, put something, what we think is the answer, into our life, and yet it continues to leave us empty. I think one of the main learnings that we can take away from the story of Naaman, and it's also a theme of the Bible, is that all of us are looking for something in the world, and there is nothing here that can fulfill it. I was listening to a really popular comedian, and... Uh, very successful, made a ton of money, really famous. And one of the sketches or one of the bits that he talks about, he talks about his life and just being a middle-aged man and trying to figure it out. And he just can't figure it out. In fact, at one point he says, I would give a million dollars if someone could just tell me what is wrong with me and how to fix it. Because he knows he's made the money, he has the fame, he has everything that he needs, and yet there's still something not right about him. If I could only figure out what the problem is. See, that's the same thing that I think everybody, every human being asks that question is, what is it that I'm missing? I feel like I'm missing maybe it's meaning or it's purpose or it's hope, identity, it's healing. We're looking for something. And so we continue to put things that we think are going to be the answer. Maybe it's a romantic partner. Maybe that's what it is. Well, that new one didn't work, so let's try another one. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's success and accomplishments. Whatever it is, we continue to try to find the answer to the thing that we're seeking, and yet it just doesn't get us there. Because if money and popularity and success were the answer, it were the thing that we're looking for, then every celebrity would be the most fulfilled and happy person on the planet. And yet that does not seem to be the case. They don't seem to be all that happy. In fact, they, they seem to be the people who are most unhappy oftentimes. I think that's because they have 
bought into this idea that if they just had these things, then life would be okay. They got those things, and life still wasn't any better. And so they've totally lost the hope of things getting better. They don't have hope anymore. They are hopeless because the thing they thought was going to provide the fulfillment didn't get them there. Now, if you've been at church and, and you know this and you've heard this before, you intellectually go, yes, I know that to be true. And that there's something in our heart that continues to fight this idea. So as I've walked through kind of a, a season where I'm wrestling with people and things and I'm tired and I'm trying to deal with all this stuff, I still have my go-to. The thing that I believe is going to solve my problems. I know what the answer is, but I still keep coming back to this thing. So right now, uh, here's my go-to. My go-to is I want an off-road truck, a place in the woods, and nobody else. Okay, I just want, that's what I want. I just want to play all day. I'm out in the woods. I'm having fun. I'm off-roading. That is what's going to make me happy. That's what's going to bring me fulfillment. That's the thing that I'm currently looking for right now. Now, you laugh because it's, it sounds ridiculous, right? I'd be out there for a day and go, all right, now what? Right, now what do we do? All right, maybe a week. But like eventually I'd get to the place where I go, okay, this wasn't it either. All of us have bought into this idea that there is something out there that's going to make it all okay. And it's not there. Verse 8, but when Elijah, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, and he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elijah's house. And Elijah, came, or Elijah sent a message to him saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over and place and cure, uh, over and place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpah, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and left in a rage. So here's what's happening. I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna contextualize this a little bit. Is let's imagine that someone's super powerful, probably the most powerful person uh, in the world, is gonna be the president of the United States. So we're gonna go with the president of the United States has some kind of incurable disease. He's talked to every doctor, he's he sought all the medical advice, no one can help him. But then some of his friends and advisors say, you know, I think that, um, well, I've heard and I believe that there is this person. He's a pastor. He lives in Bakersfield. He lives out of a trailer. Uh, but I think he can heal you. He goes, all right, I'll give it a shot. That's kind of all the hope that I have. And so he gets his entourage together and they drive all their black suburbans out there and they arrive in this middle of nowhere and it's just chaos. This is crazy. The president of the United States is here to see this little nobody living out of a trailer. And what happens is, as he arrives, this little poor preacher doesn't jump out and goes, welcome, I'm so excited that you're here. He sends his cousin and goes, hey, go tell him to go jump in the pond next door. What? Go tell him to jump in the pond next door? Of course he's going to be insulted. In fact, he is so angry at the response of this prophet that he's ready to just give up on the whole thing. I would rather die than be insulted like I just have been insulted. How dare you disrespect me? I'll walk away from my last hope of life because of my pride. See, pride is one of those things that steals our joy and hope and even healing. Because in this moment, Naaman has the possibility, at least that there's a glimmer of hope in which he can have life, and yet he's willing to walk away from it because of his pride. 
Now that sounds extreme until you realize that's what every one of us do when we reject God. Is God is offering a relationship with us, he's offering healness, he's offering eternal life, and yet there is the pride within us that says, no, I'm good. I don't need your forgiveness, God, because I'm a good person. I've done more good than bad, and I don't need your forgiveness, I don't need salvation, I'm okay like I am. Or, you know what, God, um, I actually know what's best for my life. I know what my sex life and my money and my schedule and my faith, I know what's best for those things. And so I'm going to go ahead and take control. I don't want to do what you have to say. Yeah, I may be weak and I may be suffering and I'll work it out. I will pull myself up by my bootstraps and figure this out on my own. You know what all those responses to God are? That's fueled by pride. It's the same thing that keeps us away from God is the same thing that's keeping Naaman away from healing. Verse 13. My father, the prophet had told you to do something great. Would you not have done it? So luckily, Naaman is surrounded by some pretty smart people. He says, look, we came all this way. This is your last hope. What you need to do right now is you need to humble yourself. Stop being so arrogant. Stop being so prideful. You can have what you are looking for right now if you will simply humble yourself. Which is, I think, the third learning that we can take away is that everything we have is a gift. We are entitled to nothing. I love when Nabil was here. He said something that I'd never heard before. He said, you know, the scripture says that all of us are deserving of death, which sounds really extreme because we think of it in terms of, I haven't done that many bad things in life. How am I deserving of death? He says, no, no, here's the deal. Is it's not the things that you've done. It's your rejection of God as your ultimate authority. And if God is the source of life and you reject God, what you're doing is you're rejecting life and embracing death. And that's exactly what happens here. Is if we reject God, we are rejecting life. But if we humble ourselves, we can receive life to the full. The scripture says over and over again that we cannot earn our healing or our forgiveness. It's only through humility and submission. See, Elisha doesn't come to the front door because, um, and, and deliver this message because he is not only testing, but showing the attitude in which it takes to receive God's healing and forgiveness. Not an attitude that puffs up and says, I deserve something, but an attitude that says, I humbly come and bow to receive something. See, Naaman wanted to do what he had always done, and this is how the world works is he wanted to come in power, he wanted to come and he wanted to earn it, he wanted to buy it, because the way that you earn your value in the world, the way that you are seen as somebody, the way that you receive is if you earn, is if you pay for it, if, if you are somebody. And the gospel is the exact opposite. It says there's nothing you can do. There, you have to admit that there is nothing that you have done that is deserving of God's grace. In fact, it's just a gift. It is, it is a gift that is offered freely. Because part of the par Naaman's problem was, you want me to go and do something that any sick, elderly, child, anyone can do. It doesn't take anything special. I just got to go jump in this river? That's insulting for a man of my prestige. Exactly. Because there's nothing that you can do. It is a free gift available to everyone. It's because he didn't understand who God was. He's used to these gods that, that he can manipulate, that he can impress, that he can earn from. But I think the closest analogy that I can think of when we're trying to impress God, remember, God, morally perfect, all-powerful, owns everything, created everything. When we try to impress that God, it's kind of like my three-year-old coming and saying, okay, I'm going to pay you rent for living here. What? 
you're going to, you, three-year-old, you're going to pay me rent. What do you have that's going to impress me? Nothing, because everything you have, I gave you in the first place. You don't have anything. In fact, you're kind of a pain sometimes. And yet, because I love you, I will let you live here as a gift, freely. There's nothing you're going to give me. And that's kind of what happens when we try to impress God. He's going, what? You're going to impress me? <laughs> no, there's nothing you can do. The only reason why you're healed, you're forgiven, is because it's a gift. So verse 14, let me hustle up here. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Now here's what's crazy. The next part is not him jumping up and going, I'm healed, I'm cured, my disease, it's gone, I'm getting my future back, I'm getting my life back, because although he is healed of his leprosy, he realizes that there's something bigger happening here. Because the healing of leprosy is really only addressing the symptom. He's still going to die, right? He added a couple years of his life and probably avoided some pain and, and some embarrassment and, and uh, some conflict because the leprosy was now taken away. But ultimately, the, the problem is still there. Death. He's still going to die. He's still going to end up in the grave. He just has extended it a little bit. See, I had an um, a, a, a incredible headache a few years ago. Worst I've ever had. I just, I was, I was suffering. And so I'm taking this Tylenol, I'm taking whatever I can get a hold of because I need this thing to go away. Now, if you saw me in that moment and, saw, and the, the pain subsides, and I said to you, Tylenol was the cure. That's all I needed. That's it. I'm cured now. You would say, I think that there might be a bigger problem here. And there was. I needed a root canal. But if I'd said Tylenol was the answer, you would say, no, you have a deeper issue here. And that's what happens with Naaman. He goes, you know, this disease, my brokenness, that was a symptom. That was a symptom of something bigger that's happening here. He gets up and he says this. He says, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. He realized that the symptom was his brokenness. But it was all caused by something bigger. And that something bigger was that he and the rest of the world was broken. In all arenas of life is broken. And yes, you can go and fix symptom and symptom, and that's fine, and that's good, and we want to experience healing and forgiveness and reconciliation. We want all of those things in the arenas of our life. However, if we don't address the root cause, which is our separation from God, which has broken all of these things, then we keep addressing symptoms and never get to the root of the issue. And so he realizes in that moment, I may have experienced healing of leprosy, but there's something bigger happening. I met the God of the universe. I met the God who can fix all of my brokenness, who can fix my main problem, which is I need to be reconciled to my creator. It's also foreshadowing what was to come. 600 years later, this man named Jesus shows up on the scene and he does this same thing, except he doesn't just become a pointer to God. He shows up and says, I am God, and I'm the one that you've been waiting for. He walks around and he heals people's uh, wounds and, and, and he, he releases them from bondage and he goes around and he addresses their symptoms, but he ultimately says, I have come to forgive your sins. I've come to address the real issue. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to prove it by, by doing these miracles and by performing these uh, miraculous works. 
But ultimately, I've come to address your real issue. Your real issue is sin has separated you from God. And so the last thing that we're going to look at that Naaman says is this. He says, so please accept a gift from your servant. See, Naaman came, and when he came, he was operating like the world operates. He came with money. He came with power. He came to sway God. And he walks away going, I've received everything that I could want. And now I just want to give graciously. It's not based on what I've done, and now I know that. It's not based on what I've earned. It's purely based on what was done for me. And we, as Christians, we look back and we know it's because of what Jesus has done for us. And here's how he can walk away knowing this now. He can walk away in success and failure because prior to this, it was all based on his performance what he could do, what he can earn, what he can prove to the people around him. And now he walks away and goes, it's not based on any of those things. Because I did not receive my forgiveness based on any power or authority or influence that I had. It was purely a gift. And so in those moments of success, I am humbled knowing that my success does not save me. And in those moments of failure, I get to walk away going, I was not forgiven and loved because of anything I did, and so it's not going to be taken away. God is not stressed or depressed about my successes or my failures. He loves me when I fail. He loves me when I succeed. And that's how someone can walk away in moments of success and failure and walk away humble and yet confident, knowing that there's nothing that I can do or not do to lose God's love because it was a gift from the beginning and it will always be a gift. All I have to do is humbly submit and accept that gift, which sounds easy and is actually the hardest thing in the world because it means that we have to admit that we are not in charge, that we are not our ultimate authority, that we need a Savior. And so my challenge would be if you have never made that commitment before, today would be the day that you say, okay, God, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of living off my performance. I'm try, tired of trying to earn my identity and, and my forgiveness. I'm giving it up to you. And if you're like me and you've been walking with the Lord for a while and yet you still struggle with this, I need you to learn how to preach. And what I mean by that is you got to preach to yourself because that's something that I do every Monday morning. After a long weekend, I preach to myself and go, Cody, good or bad, it's all good. God loves you anyway. Do your best, then take a nap. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord God, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have been given in order to come into a relationship with you. It is an incredible gift, one that we did not earn, one that we did not deserve, and yet that is good news because that gives us the ability to walk out of this room and whatever we are facing, whether it is the highs or lows, the successes, the failures, we can walk out confident and yet humble because there's nothing that we can or cannot do in order to lose your love because you have given us your love and your, your salvation as a gift. And so, Lord, let us be able to accept that gift if we never have before. And let us continue to preach that to our hearts in those moments in which we continue to be drawn back to trying to earn our forgiveness. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's your name we pray. Amen.